Today we're in uh, Romans 13. We're picking up our study again in the book of uh, Romans. We're going to look at the whole chapter today, Romans 13, 1 to uh, 14. This last week I was uh, watching uh, with my daughters, I was watching, uh, there's all these old Charlie Brown uh, TV shows or little mini like 30 minute movies. You ever seen those? And uh, there's one called It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown. And uh, we were we were watching this one together, and in it, Linus, he's this little guy, and he's like the philosopher of all the Peanuts gang, and he is always saying these deep, profound things. And his thing in this particular episode is that he's waiting for, in what he calls a sincere pumpkin patch, he's waiting for this figure called the great pumpkin to come out of the sky and to deliver presents to all the good little boys and girls on earth. So it's kind of like a rivalry with Santa Claus, you know, kind of thing. And he's like telling somebody about it and they get all upset with him and they walk away. And then he says out loud, he says, I've learned never to talk with people about religion, politics, or the great pumpkin. (laughs) And when I heard that this last week, I thought, oh, cool. Well, at least on Sunday, I don't have to talk about the great pumpkin. Uh, Because Romans 13 touches on politics, it touches on religion, and uh, so that's where we're going to go today. In the the life and the ministry of of Jesus, uh, there came a moment where the religious leaders wanted to divide Jesus' audience. They saw that he was gaining fame and popularity. They didn't like what they saw. So they came to him attempting to trap him. They do this often. But this particular trap, they came to Jesus and they said, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That question, whatever Jesus answered, was supposed to divide the audience. If Jesus had responded in that moment and said, it is lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar then everyone who was there listening who was for the people of Israel and for the sovereignty of Israel and moaning and mourning that there was no sovereignty in Israel because Roman uh, occupation upon the Israelite nation, anyone who heard him say as a potential messianic figure, yeah, we should be paying taxes to Caesar, they were waiting for the Messiah to come and drive out the Romans, not come under the Roman government. So that would have caused Jesus to lose that whole audience. If Jesus, on the other hand, had said, no, you know, I'm with those who want to drive out the Romans and get rid of them. We should not be paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, We shouldn't do it. Then uh, the Roman government, people who were sympathetic to the Roman government, people who were working in the Roman government, who were always on the alert for uh, insurrections uh, in the, you know, the provinces that they were dominating would have found Jesus, a leader who was saying, let's rebel against the Romans. And so then Jesus would have gotten in trouble with them. So it was a very divisive kind of question. They were trying to trap Jesus uh, in that question. So Jesus, you know, he always has, has a beautiful answer for these kind of traps that they try to give to him. And so he says to them, give me a denarius, give me a coin. He asks them to produce it. He doesn't pull one from his co- uh, uh, pockets or from their uh, you know, treasure, treasure chest or anything like that. He says, you give me a denarius. And so they give it to him, and he holds it up, and he says, whose who's image and inscription is on this? And they said, it's Caesar's. By doing that, what Jesus strategically did is he made them say with their own mouths, 
We are living under the infrastructure that Caesar has created. We're using his money, you know, by extension. We're using his roads, uh, protection, you know, things like that. We are living under this governmental system. We've accepted it just by saying that's Caesar. You know, that's his inscription. That's his money. And so then Jesus said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. By saying that, he was saying, look, there are certain things that, you, that human beings owe to God. There's honor that we need to give to God. There's worship that we need to give to God, devotion that we need to give to God. And then there are things that we give to the governmental system that we are under. So he says, give those things to Caesar, whoever Caesar might be for you and Christians throughout the ages, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now we read that, you know, a couple thousand years later, and it's like, oh, that was a cool, like, thing that Jesus did. Look how he just dodged that one, you know, and it's impressive to us. But the reality is, Jesus talking like that and teaching like that was revolutionary for the Jewish Messiah. Because they were waiting for a Messiah, like I said earlier, who would demolish the Roman government and establish a visible political entity in his rule and reign right there on earth at that time. But what Jesus was announcing over and over again, John the Baptist, same thing when they would say the kingdom of heaven is at hand is what they were introducing to us is the idea that when you come to Christ, you enter into a new kingdom and you retain still your old citizenship. In other words, as believers, we are dual citizens. We have a citizenship on earth, but like we read a couple of weeks ago in the book of Philippians chapter 3, we also have a citizenship in heaven. And I'll talk to you about that uh, when we get to the end of uh, this chapter, but maybe a good question to ask at this point of you is, which citizenship do you think will last longer? The one here or the one there? The one that's now or the one that is for all of eternity? And so obviously we know the answer uh, to that question. All right, so here's what we're going to do today. It, there's basically one big point that Paul's going to make, and then there are three applications that follow that point in the verses that follow. The big point, verse 1 through 4, is simple. It's this. God instituted government. God instituted government. Okay, so we're going to take a look at what that means, what that's all about, the implications. And then the applications are, are these. Christians are to live in subjection to their government. Christians are to live in subjection to their government. And so we'll talk about that and some of the unique maybe applications in our style of government that we're under. And then number three, Christians owe only, or we are to owe only love to other people. This is to be something that we're to continually feel that we owe the world that we live in, the people that we interact with, love. And then lastly, Christians are to live, fourthly, like Jesus's government is coming soon. Christians are to live like Jesus's government is coming soon. Okay, so that's where we're going. Number one, God instituted government. Let's read verse one and two uh, together. He says there in Romans 13, verse 1, please follow along in your Bibles. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, verse 2, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. He's probably not talking about the judgment of God here, but the judgment that comes from the authorities. 
All right, so the big exhortation is there at the beginning of verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Here's what we're going to do, though, because Paul kind of hits the pause button. He says it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Pause. And in verse 5, he's going to talk to us about what that looks like, to be in subjection to the governing authorities. But before he does that, he wants to make the point. The governing authorities have been instituted by God himself. All right, so a question we might ask at this point is, why is Paul talking about this? Why is Paul talking about this? Remember at the beginning of chapter 12, I told you there was a mission statement for the Christian life. You guys remember it? My body for God's glory. You remember that? My body for God's glory. Paul said it in a different way, but that's my kind of version of it. My body for God's glory. So what that means is, as a Christian, I want to figure out how to use my ears, my eyes, my mouth, my hands, my feet, my intellect. I want to use all of this for the glory of God, right? So that's what I desire. And then Paul unpacked that, and he's still unpacking that. And he told us, this is how you use your body for God's glory amongst Christians. And then he went on to say, and this is how you use your body for God's glory amongst non-believers, non-Christians. And then this is how you use your body for God's glory amongst your enemies. Vengeance doesn't belong to you, but it belongs to the Lord and things like that. And then now here, what he's saying is this is how you use your body for God's glory in relationship to the government that you're under. All right. So that's why Paul is talking about this at this time. And the reason I'm talking about it at this time is because we just decided to go through the book of Romans started last January. And here we are. And it's the day before one of the most or the, the like divisive United States presidential elections that I can remember in a long time. So lucky me that I get to teach this to you today. I'm really excited about it. It is important, I think, to remember the setting that Paul was in. The setting that Paul was in. Because some people might read verse 1 through 4 and say, what, Matt, wow, Paul, he's talking about God instituting the governing authorities, that they don't bear the sword in vain. He must have lived in a beautiful and wonderful governmental system. But that's not true. You guys know that? The Roman government was brutal. They uh, operated in extremes. And by the time of Paul, there had already, by the time Paul is writing this letter, there had already been uh, Roman uh, sanctioned waves of persecution, driving Christians actually out of the city of Rome. Paul himself, of course, had been beaten by Roman officials, Roman authorities. And like we read there in the book of Philippians two weeks ago, he was wondering, are they going to kill me or are they going to let me live? And I say that because some people try to make the argument, well, Paul was writing this at a time when the Roman government was pretty nice to him and they gave him protections and things like that. No, Paul was very conscious of the brutality of the Roman government. They did, after all, ultimately kill his savior. So he understood that. He had lived under that experience. And also, early Christians, after Paul's time, they, as they read Romans 13, came to the conclusion that, yes, we also should submit ourselves to the governing authorities. There were many who we have quotations from in those early first couple hundred years after the time of Christ. But one of them is a man named Justin Martyr. Listen to what he said to the government, the Roman, same Roman government, but it had gone so sideways and corrupted and perverted by the time he was around. But he said this, 
He said, everywhere we more readily than all men, he's talking about Christians, we, we do this more than other people, we endeavor to pay, those, pay to those appointed by you the taxes. Then he describes the taxes. He says, both ordinary and extraordinary. Have you ever felt that way when you're paying your taxes? Well, there's the ordinary ones, and then, the, whoa, that's, a, that's extraordinary. Uh, and then he says, as we have been taught by Jesus. Why are we doing this? Because this is how Jesus taught us. We worship, he goes on to say, only God. But in other things, we will gladly serve you. So we can only give our worship to, to God. We can't give our worship to the Caesar, governmental authorities. But in other things, he says, we'll gladly serve you. Acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men and praying that with your kingly power, you may be found to possess also sound judgment. And there were many others around the, the, that same time period who we have quotations from, who that was their understanding of Romans 13. We are going to come under this governmental system. It might be brutal, it might be difficult, it might be hard, but we are going to come under it in the ways that Jesus Christ taught us to come under it, lest we incur judgment uh, from that governmental system. All right, so maybe for you, though, you look at verse 1 and 2, and you see a phrase there said in a few different ways. He says that the governmental authorities, they've come from God, they're instituted by God, and they are what God himself has appointed. Isn't there a question in your mind like, what does that mean? What does that mean? That God appoints, and that God has instituted, and that they come from God. You know, on one hand, you could say it like this. There are three institutions that God himself has gotten behind. He's gotten behind the institution of marriage or the family. He's gotten behind the institution of the church. He authored that. And then also government. You know, all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, when Noah came out of the ark, he began instituting government along with the death penalty, the ability to you know, carry out ultimate judgment upon a person's life. Here, though, the question is really simple. Does God appoint every single specific leader that has ever existed in all of mankind? Or, like probably most people believe, does God simply just delegate his authority into the governmental structures on earth, but allow them to operate uh, as they see fit? Certainly, we understand from reading the Bible that there are individual rulers, sometimes incredibly evil, that God is able to use and produce glory from as a result of their leadership. Uh, the, The pharaohs would be an example of that in the book of Exodus. God using the hardness of heart in that final pharaoh against Moses and the people of Israel. Cyrus would be another example who God had said a man named Cyrus will become the king of the Medo-Persian empire and he will command my people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and a man named Cyrus arose and did just that. Uh, Artaxerxes was used by God. Pilate himself was used by God. Even though his hands could not be cleansed through that simple symbolic thing of washing his hands with water, he couldn't wash himself from his guilt in crucifying Jesus. But still, God used his evil act to produce the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. A great example of God using the even most evil world rulers is the example from the Old Testament of God using the life of a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Habakkuk the prophet was praying about the people in Israel, and he just saw stuff that made him just so frustrated. 
And so, uh, you know, he, he didn't have Facebook at the time, so he couldn't do, write anything about it there. So he went and prayed to God. That was a little tongue-in-cheek. That was a little warning shot. Man, that wasn't nice of me. But um, he goes to God, and he's like, hey, how are you letting this happen? How are you letting this happen? You know, all this evil is happening in the nation of Israel. And God said, oh, don't worry, I see it. I'm going to judge it. And the way I'm going to judge it is I'm going to send the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to take you captive into Babylon for 70 years. Habakkuk was like blown away. How's that going to happen? You know, they're more evil than we are, but God had his ways. And Nebuchadnezzar brought the people of Israel into captivity for 70 years and, you know, went through all this stuff. And this guy began to be filled up with great pride within his heart. Remember, he, had a, he was the one that had the dream of a statue with four different metals in it. The head was made of gold. The chest was made of silver. The, uh, the next phase was made of the, kind of the, the waist and all that was made of uh, bronze and then the fi- or, and, or bronze and clay, and then the final was just clay itself, and, or clay and iron mixed together. And uh, he wanted somebody to interpret this dream. And Daniel the prophet came forward, actually told him what the dream was, and then interpreted the dream for him. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom, the Babylonians, you are the head of gold. There's a world superpower coming after you. We know now that it was the Medo-Persian Empire. They will be the next level. Then there will be another world power after you. And we know that now, just looking back on human history, that was the Grecian Empire. And then the final one, the feet that were there mixed with clay and iron, that will be the fourth world superpower after you. And that was the Roman Empire that Paul is actually living under. And it's interesting because in the vision, there was a huge stone carved out of the mountain made without hands, and it came and it struck the feet, and then the whole thing broke, and that stone that was there was a king represented a kingdom that would last forever that's jesus yo and that's like good that's good news and so that's what nebuchadnezzar was seeing was these four world superpowers and then after that this thing would break and nations would just kind of you know go their separate ways and there'd be you know various powers but nothing like worldwide like nebuchadnezzar like uh, babylon medo-persian uh greece or the roman empire until the last days Nebuchadnezzar was proud, though. So when he built a statue representing what he saw, he made it all gold. It was his way of saying, no, my kingdom will be the kingdom that lasts forever. I'm going to beat the dream that I had. And one day, with that kind of pride in his heart, he was walking on the balcony of his palace, and he looked out and he said, look at great Babylon that I have built. And the voice of God came and spoke to him. He said, you are going to be driven into the wilderness and for seven years you're going to lose your mind and you are going to eat grass like the ox eats grass until you know that the Most High gives the kingdoms of men to whom he chooses. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. So, you know, that's just an example of God sovereignly doing his thing. So uh, part, of a, part of the Christian experience and belief system is that the Lord is sovereign. He's on the throne. And he is taking human history and he's wrapping it all up together to a final conclusion when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And his ways so often in producing that are not our ways, but we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? All right, so that was a lot that I said about two verses, so let's, let's keep going. He says in verse 3, about those rulers, he says, for rulers, verse 3, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. All right, so here, Paul uses a title for the government official. And if you're working in the government, this should be a blessing to you. Because he says there, he says, first of all, verse 4, they are God's servant for your good. And then at the end of verse 4, he is the servant of God. All right, so government has a beautiful place in God's purposes here on earth. And, uh, you know, there have been times where the state has tried to control the church. And there are nations where the church has tried to control the state. And then there are times where the state favors the church and the church bends maybe their belief system a little bit in order to continue to get the favor or the aid or usually money from the state. But then there are times where the state understands that the church is separate and needs to exist and do its thing and gives them the peace and the freedom to operate. And the church understands that the state is a thing and it needs to be able to operate and do its thing. And that is, you know, the best circumstance that can exist. And what Paul is saying here is that when it's operating correctly, rulers are a terror, not to good conduct, but to bad conduct. And he says there actually, if you do wrong, verse 4, be afraid. That's the way that it's supposed to work. So maybe to just think about this like in your own life, if you're driving down the road and the speed limit is 55 miles an hour and you drive and you're going 55 miles an hour and you see a police officer, you know, I mean, I still get paranoid. Even if I am going 55, there's a little bit like, Oh, I hope my taillights are good. Is my registration right? You know, things like that, you know, so you might still be wondering, but you feel a lot better then than you do when you're going 80 and a 55, right? I mean, during that time, it's like, you have a certain feeling. You, Paul describes it. If you do wrong, be afraid. Okay. So that's, that's the feeling. Now this is, this is interesting because there's a popular thought that, that um, amongst the non-believing world that human beings are basically good and there's a few bad apples out there. When we studied Romans 1, 2, and 3, we discovered, no, mankind is basically evil. We're born in sin. We are broken. So the things we want, the things we desire, they're broken. So we need Jesus to redeem us for that goodness to begin to come out. Uh, so there is a brokenness with us. So, but because of that idea that mankind is basically good, uh, some people would think that if there were no government, then we would somehow, you know, there'd be just like beauty and happiness and we'd like paint each other's houses and mow each other's grass or something like that. Like, I don't know how people imagine that it would work, but it's like a, like a very utopian kind of world and society. And we actually have a failed experiment in, in this in our recent history when you think about in the 90s when the internet came out. 
And there were so many people that were saying, this is going to be great because it's just going to connect people from all over the world together. We're going to just love each other. It's going to be amazing. And some of you guys have discovered like the deepest forms of hate and separation and anger on the internet, right? So it can be used for good. It can be used for evil. But, uh, you know, so what Paul is saying here is that even a bad government is better than no government. Because if this world had no laws for even just a couple of hours, evil that would come out is obscene. And so Paul here is announcing, at the very least, in a big generality, that the governmental systems that exist, they keep evil in check. He says that they're a terror, not to good conduct, but to bad. Now, if we just hit the pause button on that for a second, though, probably in your mind, you're able to think, though, about governmental systems who are a terror to good and actually proliferate evil themselves, promote it. Uh, you know, maybe some kind of racism that exists from a government official. You know, for me in my role and my position, uh, it's not hard for me to imagine a day that would come in this culture, in this society, in this state, where teaching what the Bible says about sins like homosexuality would actually be against the law. Uh, You know, there are various things like that. Um, I read this last week about a man named Michael Cassidy who in the 80s was fighting against apartheid in South Africa. And he secured a meeting. He's a Christian. He secured a meeting with the president of South Africa. He thought, okay, cool, we're going to have some dialogue. We might be able to move this forward and break apartheid. And when he came into the meeting, the president opened up his Bible, stood and read from Romans 13 and said, you need to obey me. You need to obey me. You know, I'm the governing authority. You just need to get with this program. For us as believers, here's what we would, I think, confess. This is what the Bible would teach us. That we as citizens are to obey our governmental authorities right up to the point where obedience to the state would mean disobedience to God. Where obedience to the state becomes disobedience to God we must obey God, the apostles, like they said, we must obey God rather than man. And we have many examples of this, obviously, in the Bible. Like the Hebrew midwives, when they you know, refused the command of Pharaoh and let the Hebrew children uh, live in Exodus 1 and 2. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the friends of Daniel, when they were commanded to bow and worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, they stood in protest of that ungodly act and said, no, we won't do it. We can't bow down and worship a false god. Or Daniel, when he heard that there, a command had been given that no one could worship any other god uh, except uh, and, and pray to the gods of the Babylonians and Cyrus and, uh, or Darius, and he went to his home, he opened up the windows of his house, pointed towards Jerusalem and prayed like he had every other day that he'd been in Babylon. And so in a sense, for the Christian, absolutely nothing will ever change. We are called to be obedient to the living God, no matter what the governmental authorities might ask of us or might command of us. We must obey God rather than men. I feel like I should get an amen right now at this point from you guys, you know, so just, you know, hook me up. All right, so 
So, so that's like the big, you know, concept. So how does this then apply into our daily lives? Let's read it in verse 5. 5 to 7. Now we learn Christians are to live in subjection to their government. Therefore, verse 5, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor uh, to whom honor is owed. So we're to live, uh, like he said, in, in subjection. And so we do these certain things. We pay taxes uh, because that's their job. You know, they're working for the government, so we pay taxes. Verse 7, we give taxes to everyone we owe, revenue, respect, and honor. I want you to think about the life of Jesus, for instance. You know, when he was born, think about where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem because of the Caesar, who was brutal at the time, commanding that the whole world would go to their place of origin and be counted. So Jesus was, you say, oh, he was born in a barn. That's so humble. He spent that first night in a feeding trough and everything. That's so humble. But the reason that he was there was because of a governmental authority. So his life was born in the submission, subjection to a governmental authority. Uh, Immediately after he was born, you know, the wise men eventually came. They went to Herod. They told him what they had seen, the star from the east that they'd come to travel and all of that. And Herod... uh, fearing that that a Jewish Messiah had been born, gave the wicked command for babies two years old and under to be killed. And Jesus had to flee for his life with his family down into Egypt, where they hid because of the governmental system that they were under. When he eventually returned and then he became popular, there was always a tension with the Roman government because there were times where the people wanted to make Jesus their king. And that would have really caught the eye of the Romans. And then ultimately, the Romans did not authorize the crucifixion of Jesus for any religious reason. No, they authorized his crucifixion because he said he was the king of the Jews. And that was the accusation they they put upon his cross when they crucified him. So Jesus, you know, he lived that life of subjection and, you know, he paid the price uh, in so many ways because he did. Now, I don't know in the middle of all this, I can, I can tell you I'm not exactly certain that this text gives us direction on what to do when a government really goes astray from God or direction on what to do in the midst of a revolution. You know, like for instance, there were Christians during America's revolution from the British that were saying, this, this is actually not something that we're allowed to do. Uh, but, you know, I mean, what would you have done in that situation? It's just, it's just hard. These are difficult questions that get asked. You know, I, I'm, I wonder if I was around during the days of Hitler and somebody had asked me, hey, would you like to be part of a secret plot to take this guy's life? I think I'd have been like, give me a sword and I will not bear the sword in vain. That's what it says in verse 4. He will not bear the sword in vain. So I'd be like, this isn't for nothing. I'm going to actually use it kind of deal. You know, I don't know. There's just a lot of difficulties here. But in the end, what is being taught to us is a submission. And I think on one hand, 
on one hand, this should maybe be a little bit of a freeing you know, reality for us as Christians. Obviously, we live in a unique kind of time in, in history, unique kind of governmental system. We're invited to vote. We're invited to you know, have dialogue. We're invited to state our objections. We're invited to civil protest. We're invited into things like that in the government system that we live in. So that can be all good. And some of us are called into the political realm and arena. And if God calls you into politics, then you need to tell the people in your life so that we can be praying for you. Because man, that would be such a difficult life to engage in. Many of you are involved in the military and you're a citizen, you're a citizen of the kingdom. You're involved in the military, but you're a citizen of God. You need God's wisdom as to how to be a servant of God in the midst of that kind of environment. God can use your life for the suppression of evil is what Paul is teaching us. But on the other hand, it might be helpful to us as Christians to see that Paul thought of changing people's lives primarily from the inside out. He saw a need for a revolution of the gospel reaching into the world. He wanted the Caesar to get saved. Absolutely. He wanted the emperor to come to Christ. But what he really wanted was for the people in Rome to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He believed that was where real change and transformation would come from. And so, you know, Paul is just saying, you got to lay down your life. you got to pay your taxes in the system that you're in. All right, speaking of owing, he says in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, verse 9, and these are all from the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. All right, there is a question here, and the question is, is Paul talking about finances when he says in verse 8, owe no one anything. That'd be scary for a lot of us because we maybe have a little bit of debt, a mortgage, you know, something like that. And uh, it seems that that's probably not what Paul is talking about because there are places in the Bible that give us directions on how to borrow and how to lend. Although the Bible does give warnings that certain kind of debt can be sin. A certain kind of borrowing can be unwise, and a certain kind of debt can be a bad witness. So you have to watch out for that. I remember being at a conference where it was all people that were like 25 years and younger wanting to serve Jesus with their lives, and they asked me to come and speak and share with them anything that I could uh, or that I felt led to share with them. And the big thing that I wanted to share with them, I shared a few other little things, but the big thing was don't get into massive consumer debt. Because I just knew you want to serve the Lord with your life. The second that you get into that kind of debt, it's going to be very hard for you. You're going to become the servant of the lender rather than the servant of Jesus, being able to have the flexibility to go do, say, whatever uh, you need to say. But here what Paul is saying is, look, be paid up in your taxes. Be paid up in your, uh, you know... Uh, expenses, be paid up in your honor, be paid up in your respect, but be indebted always to love. Be indebted always to love. Why would he say that? We'd say that because you can never get to the point where you say, I have paid that one in full. You can never say that. If you're married, you can't look at your spouse and be like, you know what? I did it. I have fulfilled my obligation. 
all of the love that I promised that I would give, I paid it all up, and now, you know, it's done. No, you're always, you always owe more. You always owe more. And a question maybe that should be asked here, because he's talking about Christians, Christians are to owe exclusively and only love. We might want to ask ourselves, am I growing in my love for others? Am, am I growing in my compassion for other people? Am I seeing, you know, groups of people that are in, in pain and hurting, and is, that, is my heart expanding for them? Do I hear about a, you know, a ministry like the Compassion Pregnancy Center, and my heart begins to expand for, you know, like, like Andrew was talking about, like a, a mother in a predicament like that? Do, do I, is my heart there? Does it expand to that place? You know, and when I see people groups that normally I wouldn't connect with or relate with, is there an expansion of my heart? Is my heart, is my love growing or is it receding? Is it getting smaller and smaller? The Christian is a person who wants to expand in their love rather than grow smaller in their love. All right, finally, he says this in verse 11. Here's where we're to live like Jesus' government is coming soon. Look at this. He says, besides this, you know the time, verse 11, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk, verse 13, properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. And then listen to what he says next in that same category. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Notice there in verse 11, Paul says, our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation occurs in three stages. There's the past tense version of our salvation. So, you know, Jesus Christ, he came to save us from our sin. So we were in sin, we were in our guilt, we were in our shame. But Jesus came and lived the life that you and I could never live. And he died the death that we should have died. And he rose from the dead, that whoever believes in him, who says, you died in my place, as we believe in him, we receive something. And the thing that we receive, we call it salvation. So in past tense, I would say, I am saved, right? I am saved. But then also salvation works right now. I would say I'm being saved. You say, Nate, what are you being saved from? This is biblical terminology. Why would you say you're being saved? Well, I say I'm being saved because like, I have anger. I have for, uh, you know, uh, you know, laziness. I have all these things that are inside of me, this body of sin. And Jesus is systematically saving me from those things. He's changing my life. He's growing me. As I walk with him, submit to him, I'm being changed and transformed by the Spirit of God. So I'm being changed. Okay, So I'm being saved. I am saved. I'm being saved. But Paul says here in verse 11 that our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What he's talking about about there is a future salvation. So I am saved and I'm being saved, but I also will be saved. And when will I be saved? Well, he's talking about, of course, the second coming of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is returning. 
uh, for you and for me. He calls it, you know, this is the time where we need to wake up from our sleep. We shouldn't stumble around in darkness. We got to put on Jesus. We got to put on the armor of light. And we need to walk with him because, he, after all, his kingdom is coming and will be here at some point uh, very soon. Okay, so that's what Paul is explaining to us. So for us, this is helpful because in the middle of like thinking about like the government thing and all that kind of stuff, it's good for us to remember, oh yeah, I'm a citizen of a kingdom that's coming that will never end. And if I have that kind of dual citizenship, here's maybe some questions to think about. Am I as concerned for that kingdom as I am for my nation? Am I, am I as interested in that kingdom growing and expanding and prospering as I am in my nation? Because you know how it goes in an election kind of time. Our sight can just, like it might have been on heaven and then it just, woof, it goes down into our own just little earthly world and sphere and experience. And, you know, you get people that are like, if one result happens, I'm going to be mortified. And if and other people, and if this result happens, then I'm going to be, you know, mortified. When we forget that there are nations, there are people all over the face of this planet who, if they could trade in their governmental system for whichever one we get, they'd do it in a heartbeat. And we also so often forget that there's so much more to this world and this life. So, you know, I don't know if you came here thinking, man, Nate's going to tell me who to vote for today. You know, I don't know if you're thinking that, but, you know, obviously that's not my game. I believe that I need to give to you what the Word of God is saying right here. And uh, here he's telling us that, man, we got to be a people that wake from sleep. Our salvation is coming. So no matter, you know, where our nation goes, we know where our kingdom is going. And uh, that's something that we rejoice over. So God instituted government. Christians are to live in subjection to their government. Christians are to owe only love. And Christians are to live like Jesus, our lifestyles, to live like Jesus' government is coming soon. So man, I did it. No great pumpkin. Didn't really get into that controversial subject. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. And uh, Lord, we just come to you and we pray that, you know, this week we do ask that you help us to, you know, vote the conscience that you have placed there in our lives and in our hearts. And Lord, we pray ultimately that what would be pumping out of our lives is the love and the charity that you've asked of us. So we pray for that, Lord. And we ask, Lord, and pray that even when we're in disagreement, you know, with our government, Lord, that there would be something so powerful about the way that we live, that there would be something about us where we are good citizens, even in the midst of disagreement. Help us, Lord, we pray. Give us the wisdom of Solomon in the days in which we live. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And Lord, we just pray like the early church prayed, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's what we want ultimately. We're looking forward to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess you as Lord. When we will look around your throne room and we'll see every tribe and nation and tongue celebrating the God of heaven, worshiping and praising Jesus Christ. We're looking forward, Father, to that moment and to that day. 
So Lord, until then, help us to endure. Help us to walk with you. Help us to, as Paul said, at least in this text, to submit, Lord, ourselves to the governing authorities. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.